Every domain, war, science, business evolves through periods of radical change or revolutions. Such times divide us into thinkers and outthinkers. Outthinkers step outside the accepted paradigms in which thinkers operate. They act differently because they see the world differently. In business, outthinkers are entrepreneurs and corporate leaders who follow a new playbook. They see opportunities others ignore, challenge dogma others accept, rally resources others cannot influence, and unleash new strategies that disrupt their markets. Technological change is accelerating, the nature of business competition is shifting, and during such revolutions, outthinkers beat traditionalists. We welcome back the author of Outthink the Competition, How Innovative Companies and Strategists See Options Others Ignore, the master outthinker himself, Kaihan Krippendorf. Welcome back. Aiden, thank you so much for having me back. It's great to be here. Great to have you back, man. This book, for those watching us, is the older version. And I have a couple of copies to give away. If you just sign up to the Innovation Show Substack, I'll gladly send a copy. It's a great book. There's so much in it. And it's our penultimate book in the series. Even though Kaihan has updated this, I've tried to read a little bit of both, but have focused on the latest version. And then we're going to finish with his latest book, Driving Innovation from Within. Absolutely loved it, as always, as always with your writing. So much history, so much lessons from strategy. And I can see why you work with strategists all over the world. And I just wanted to acknowledge one of our listeners, B, in London, who suggested that perhaps I start the show with a question that sums up the book. So the question today is, so if you were on Main Street Media, Kaihan, and you had three-minute segment like the way you do, to sum up the entire book, what would you say it's about? Great companies see options and choose options that others ignore, things that they can't, now, not things that your competitors can't do, but things they won't do. The way that you see options is through language. Introducing or adopting language that allows you to think differently about problems. And therefore, in times of change, language changes because it tells us how to behave differently. And people and organizations that adopt the emerging language earlier, they're playing the next game. They're seeing the next options. They're choosing the next options. And so it's not a question of technology. It's not a question of culture. It's not a question of capabilities. It's not a question of all these other things. It is a question of language. And new languages allow you to think differently and think outside of what existing language allows you to think within. And that's why those people are outthinkers. And this ties back to the work your dad did as well that we talked about in previous episodes. Yeah, yeah. brilliant, man. Very brilliant. Much. There's a quote here that I'm going to tee you up with to think about, for example, maybe introduce who an outthinker is. And I'll start you with this because you'd forgotten all this beautiful language that you'd written in as well. So I'm reminded you of that. So you wrote, and with this, you frame it with that brilliant quote by Max Planck about science advances one funeral at a time. But you said here, in all domains of competition, from business to sports to war, breakthrough success evolves through the same pattern. First, the players fall into a routine, adopting the same practices. They are the thinkers who think inside the accepted paradigm. Then outliers emerge, few innovators who defy the standard practices. You call them outthinkers because that's what they do. Outthinkers don't outmuscle their competitors. 
outspend them. Instead, they outthink them. The thinkers, you tell us, first dismiss the outthinkers, then they ridicule them, but eventually they realize the outthinkers have figured out something new. Then they try to copy what they're doing, but if the outthinkers play their game right, by then it's too late. The outthinkers have won. Perhaps you'll tell us an example of an outthinker. Oh, I, if I were to rewrite that now, I would not use the word paradigm necessarily because I think there are different levels. Their paradigms are you know, entirely different views of the world. But below that, there are, are concepts, uh, there are language tools that aren't fully paradigms. You know, So I don't think it has to be a paradigm. Uh, one of the companies that I really have followed, um, and they've been, I would say they've been a little bit less of an outthinker in the last five, 10 years, but they still exemplify uh, what an outthinker is, is a retailer in the United States, um, although they also have stores in Europe called Urban Outfitters. And Urban Outfitters came from nothing to become very successful over a long period of time. It outperformed competition in terms of revenue growth and profit margins. And it did a number of things differently. The main thing is that they don't hire retail experts. They hire people who fit the profile of um, the audio of, 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 of their uh, customer base. And they hire particularly looking for art artistry, the ability to have a, a strong sense of, of um, aesthetics. So they hire from design schools and art and, and art schools rather than from retail schools or from business schools and then they give those people more freedom so that they can bring in artifacts from outside and shape the interior of their of their stores so if you're uh, a, a manager at urban outfitters well let's say i worked at urban outfitters when i was in college and they would let me bring in i don't even know if you know what this is aiden but a cassette tape and they would let me bring in a cassette tape and they would let me play my music into the store now if you go to a gap store or any major retailer they really carefully curate what the music is, what the layout is, what the you know what, what artifacts can be there, what it should look like in the store. But Urban Outfitters gives their managers freedom to do that. Why do they think they can do that? Because they don't hire retail experts. They hire designers, people who have a natural aesthetic sense. So you have this combination of choices that make it complicated for your competitor to copy you. And... What you can root that down to is these paradigms or concepts and the way they view their business as being a store run by customers versus a store run by retailers. Every great company, Walmart, why did Sam Walton decide to build in rural areas rather than cities? Why did Southwest Airlines decide to go back to the point-to-point -point system and everyone was going to the hub-and-spoke system, Right. Why did Michael Dell leap over retailers to sell directly to consumers originally, right? They recognize, as you said before, they recognize the competitors are entrenched in a certain way of thinking, and that creates an opportunity to do things differently in a way that your competitors won't respond to. I don't know what age you think I am. I was only telling my kids about the, the cassette types. You look like you're like 25. <laughs> that's, that's my lighting, man. That's the lighting. No, the, I, like I lived on cassette types. I was telling them how... Remember, you used to have to fast forward one side to rewind it. So you, I only had fast forward, so I had to fast forward. And I was telling them about, you know, when the tape ripped, I was out with my little piece of sellotape trying to stick it back together. We've all done that one as well. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes. You take it out. Yes, yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I had a four-track 
player. I would design music and uh, and I oh, would, a four track and I would flip it over and and uh, hit record. My son now does that with just you know purely digital. Exactly, man. I was that's what I was trying to tell my son how hard it used to be to create music and literally it was cut and paste. You'd cut and paste the, <laughs> the music. Yeah. But uh, anyway, enough of nostalgia because. Well, a little bit more nostalgia because there's a, an example you give of an outthinker, which is Google. And I, I'll give you the framework maybe, and maybe you'll give us the narrative behind Google because you say there's four challenges for outthinking your competition. The first is you must first recognize where rigidity has taken hold. We've talked about rigidity in previous episodes as well. Then you must find a new strategic option that others ignore. Thirdly, you must figure out whether the new strategy is superior. And then fourthly, you must slow your competitor's ability to copy your innovation. That fourth one, Kaihan, is so forgotten about in many cases because I often think about how it's so difficult not to sing it from the rooftops about your new product or service, but you have to be quiet for a while anyway. But here you give us the example of Google as, as a great example of an outthinker. I, I don't know if it was really intentional or just evolved, right? They started off as a white label search service for Yahoo. Now, Yahoo and uh, I think it was AltaVista at the time, these portals, one of the product features they offered was search, but they also offered content and other things, right? And they thought search was not really a valuable you know, subservice or, or element of the product. So they outsourced it. They outsourced it to Google. Uh, Google originally is a search engine with a unique way of doing search. But, you know, it's just a white screen with a, just a search bar, right? No advertisement. So what they do is they offer it to Yahoo. And Yahoo jumps to the chance to not have to deal with the search anymore. Just pay Google to do it. They also get other search engines to do it. Um, and I don't know that this was part of the plan. My guess it was not. My guess is that their investors said, how can we make more money? And they said, well, we could sell advertising. Now they're competing directly with their competitors because that's how the competitors make their revenue. It would be as if like you're making cars and you're, hire, you're buying the chassis and wheels and, and body from someone and then they start selling their own cars, right? It's It's sort of like that. And so... What it, they allowed them to do, there was this period of time, this critical period of time where your competitors, those who would resist you, who would copy you, who would fight you, would prevent you from getting what you want, instead, they don't do that. Gandhi said, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. We want them to ignore and laugh at them. However, I would say this. I would say that the idea of keeping your plans a secret, I think that that is too ephemeral a strategy. And I think that it is not the most powerful strategy, right? Because there are reasons that your competitors won't copy you. It could be because they don't, I, I use these four C's. It could be they don't conceive of the idea. It could be they conceive it, they don't consider it. It could be that they consider it, but they choose not to do it. And it could be that they can't do it. And most business strategy research is assumes that it is the fourth one. It is doing what your competitors can't do. Right, but it really is. Yahoo could have done Google, you know. Uh, Blockbuster could have done Netflix. Right? It's it's rarely they can't. They only can't if they if they choose not to do so. 
And the first two layers they can figure out really quickly. They they see what you're doing. They can copy that really quickly. I mean, in the case of Zara, who has an interesting operating operational model, their competitors have seen what Zara's been doing for many years and still haven't done it. But for the most part, they can they can see it, they can consider it. It's really the choosing of it. And that's what I think Clayton Christensen and the sessions that you did with about Clayton Christensen's work, that's what it points to is that your competitors could do it, but they choose not to do it. One reason they might choose not to do it is because it would um, it would, it would, would hurt their core business. It would cannibalize their core business. One reason not to do it. But that's just one reason. There are 36 different reasons. Out of everything, like I've read that with your work, going back into your back catalog, going into your, your uh, old cassette tapes <laughs> of thinking, I was thinking about how that is very, very rarely spoken about the importance of not telling everybody about your product or, you know, even going on podcasts or even going on panels and telling people about your strategy. And that, this goes right back to the stratagems. It goes back to Sun Tzu, the whole idea of don't let them see it coming or don't let them think you're as strong as you are. And maybe we'll give a little bit of that historical context. Yeah, I know. Sun Tzu also said that um, there's certainly, so, so there's, there's this secrecy of them not knowing what you're doing. But as I said before, I think that that is hard to protect and sustain. And eventually they, they, they figure it out. They can figure it out pretty quickly. That's a risky basis on which to bet your strategy. The best is they know what you, they, they see what you're doing, but they don't do it or they don't understand what you're doing. Sun Tzu also said something like, I'm not going to get the quote exactly right. But it was basically, people can see what I'm doing, but they don't see my strategy until it's too late. You're putting some forces over here. You're buying some bread over here. You're making some arrows over there. And you don't know what's happening. You're in the state of formation in the metal, water, wood, fire, earth uh, thing. That's the wood phase. You're putting the pieces in place, but fire hasn't kicked in. We don't yet know what they're doing, you know? And so um, that's the most important part of creating the, uh, the, the slowdown of, of competitive response. One of the great ones I learned, and I know you're a friend of Paul Nunes, and talking to Paul about the importance of supply chain, and then we just did this series with Yossi Sheffi on supply chains. And he was telling me that Apple bought up, like, bought up uh, all the, the carriage space from China for like four months ahead of time when they needed it because they know they'll need it all the time to be able to execute and actually deliver. And I thought about that. I was thinking about what you were saying. I was like kind of going, this is the whole idea of, okay, what if we succeed, what are we going to need in place for when we succeed? Right. Right. That stuff, isn't it? Because it's just, no. you're so happy to get your product done, then you kind of go, okay, what's next? But you can't think of it that way. You, you also don't know what's going to happen next, right? But you can... Uh, buy options so that you could have access to it um, if you know if the if the strategy does take off I think of the uh, one of the art, one of the stories in my book which which got really popular um, that your readers may have heard of before is the example of soft soap which is that first liquid the first liquid hand soap and they knew that if they were successful that Procter and Gamble would copy them quickly and, and Colgate Palmolive and other uh, P and you know, uh, you know uh, um, CPG companies would copy them. And so then they thought ahead, they thought, well, what would they need to copy them, copy us? And one thing they would need is the pumps that you need to make a soft soap product. So they could get the liquid soap, they could get the bottles, they could get definitely get the shelf space. 
but they bought more pumps than they needed and that slowed down competitors response because they couldn't get manufacturers to manufacture quickly they had to retool and that gave them the critical weeks of of lead time when they were the only brand on the shelf and that's how they established the brand i'm going to move now to the forces that are reshuffling the competitive landscape that you talk about in the book what i'll do is i'll introduce each of them and just give a one-liner and then you can kind of maybe expand on it so the first is the erosion of economies of scale. And you say an entrepreneur today can achieve economies of scale that used to require months of planning and millions of dollars. Over to you to maybe expand on this change. We used to have to own a lot of things and we had to buy a lot of things and we had to invest in a lot of things to be able to uh, produce what we want to produce. But now uh, we can buy, we can, we can rent things. So you can rent labor. You don't have to hire someone full time. You can rent them for an hour or a few hours, right? You can... Uh, outsource uh, uh, manufacturing to, you know, you can use Alibaba to access economies of scale very quickly. And so therefore the economies of scale required to produce things is lowering. That means the entry barrier is lowering. This one is something that we might gloss over, but it's so important. It's proximity. And this is where suppliers are moving closer to their end users. And th again, this is something that you don't perceive because you're just an end user, but this is happening all over the world. Yes, I agree. This is a, a concept that will be the name of my next book that'll be published in uh, May, 2024. And the idea here is if we take a long view of the, pay, of the, of the pr progress or direction of innovation, what we see is the production and provision of demand moves ever closer, sorry, the production provision of value moves ever closer to the point of demand in time and space. This is a concept created by a professor from uh, Kellogg and Chicago Booth, Rob Walcott. And uh, it, it just brings a lot into perspective across every sector. If we look at food, for example, producing food closer to where it's needed, more farm to table, more controlled environment farms, growing food close to restaurants and close to schools, right? Energy, we see the same thing. We're producing energy closer to where it's needed with solar panels, battery technology. In warfare, we see the same thing. In creativity, we see the same thing. Across every sector, manufacturing, we see the 3D printing allows you to produce that part not far away, many months before, but in the repair shop at the moment it's needed, right? Far fewer waste, less uh, transportation costs, less pollution from that transportation cost is far more efficient. And there are various technologies that are pushing us towards proximity. Ultimately, what we could say is that in every sector we're approaching, we may not reach it, but they're approaching the point of P equals zero where someone needs something and it is produced at that moment in that physical space there. This one talks to the next point, which is acceleration. And I often think maybe you'll expand on this, but because of this speed, so there's the erosion of economies of scale, there's a proximity, and then there's acceleration. This means that an organization needs to be mentally agile and always ready for a new competitor cropping up from nowhere. And that's the difficulty because of that erosion of economies of scale and as Rita would talk about, your competitive advantage is now a transient one. But acceleration is a huge part of this. 
Yeah, yeah, and I, I think you know we're recording this a year after ChatGPT was introduced, but the rate at which ChatGPT reached a million users was faster than any other technology. I don't have the numbers here, but we've seen for t two decades now an acceleration in adoption of technology. And then thanks to Moore's Law and the um, exponential improvement of technologies when they're digital, what we see also is an exponential improvement in the cost performance of many technologies. So you combine those two things and the future is just getting to us much more quickly than we're used to. So things that we thought were going to take 10 years now take five years and three years and two years and one year. And it's, 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 it's hard for us to get our heads around that. A little quote from the book just to emphasize, like the amount of examples are in there, but you said it took Walmart 27 years to reach $30 billion in revenue. It took Amazon 16 years, it took Google 13, and companies that went public in 2000s reached $30 million faster, 18 months faster on average than those that launched IPOs in the 1990s. So unbelievable speed to reach in revenue, which means reinvestment, which means scaling up, etc. But the next one, so point four, one was erosion of economies of scale, two, proximity, three, acceleration, four is ecosystem development. A lot of these are interrelated, right? The reason that we can... Um, uh, we have lower barriers to entry is that we can engage resources more rapidly, which the technology that allows us to do that, like when I moved here to Miami from uh, from Connecticut, we had a contractor kind of person that would was responsible for helping us with installing lights and fixing stuff and putting stuff away. and and, and But it was so slow. I started using an app popular in the United States called TaskRabbit and it allows you to just find someone, right? So I can find people really quickly. And what we're seeing now is that the ecosystem, that's an ecosystem-based approach, right? Like I don't need one person to organize. I need to hire everyone. I can hire the electrician and they can communicate with the plumber, can communicate with whatever, and we can build an ecosystem around my challenge more efficiently because transaction costs come down and coordination costs come down. And so if we expand that into the industry, what we see is more values being delivered through ecosystem partnerships than directly. And actually, there's research that we haven't published yet that shows a very strong correlation between you ask the question, my value is delivered, but my company's value is delivered primarily through a partnership with ecosystem partners. Do you agree one to five? If you agree, you're much more likely to be a top quintile of financial performance and the ability to recruit and retain top talent. Anyway, we can talk about this for a long time, but it's also requiring a shift in mindset. The idea of there's a competitor I need to beat and as a supplier that I need to cheat to get as lowest price to produce the, you know, get the most profit while beating the competitor, um, that linear that linear model is evolving, and, and many of your, your your speakers have talked about this into an ecosystem-based model. There's so many mental uh, uh, entailments and implications of that. As you said, they're all interrelated, and this is one of the problems. Is well, a problem for a, an incumbent is that this is just nonstop coming at you because the next is out number five: autonomous connected devices powered by five G. Yeah, I mean, the information that allows us to coordinate things, uh, 
you know, part of it's like you know AI and 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 big data allows us to like make sense of stuff. But the data that they can take in is now expanding because the devices that we use that we can install to measure temperatures, whether a door is open, how humid it is, whether there's a leak, the cost of those are coming down. And so we're putting more and more of these devices into spaces, which is why we have smart homes and our smart hospitals and smart manufacturing facilities and smart construction sites. We have cars that are going to be able to communicate with each other. And one's going to be able to tell the other one, hey, don't turn the corner because even though you can't see it, there's a kid crossing the road. We're going to create this. This the, with These environments are becoming connected, producing lots of data. And so we're going to have to learn how to plug into these connected environments if we're going to be competitive. One of the things I was thinking about was you were saying about working in urban outfitters and the power of those kind of organizations, because they are the people who work in them are also the customers, is the understanding of even messaging and therefore like social media, etc. And you talk about number six in the top 10 here is self-organized citizens and customers. And you say here, information once controlled by the powerful as, as a way to maintain their power is now democratized. And that enables customers and citizens. Barrier to entry for communication comes down. We can broadcast things out to other people, which allows us to uh, have the same voice or you know, strength of voice as uh, it used you know, used to be that you had, and we'll, we'll, I think we'll talk about the middleman later. Uh, used to be that the newspaper got to decide what got broadcast, right? And now that's democratized, and so we start seeing the power of the masses to organize um, around the kind of pa- power bases or pa- you know the, the the powerful, right? So you know, GameStop. The, the, this was this episode that happened here in the U.S. about these novice investors that just rallied around this company and cost the the established investors, the hedge funds, billions and billions of dollars because they kept driving up the cost when the investors were betting on the cost was go- the, the, the stock price was going to go down. Uh, you see that with you know companies worried about how customers are going to respond to. How they're going to respond to things that are going in the world, going on in the world, whether that is the Israeli conflict, whether that's Ukraine, um, it is changing the balance of power. From you know, it used to be that there was the concentrated had power, and the de- and the and the masses had less power. Now the masses can coordinate, and that adjusts uh, power across customers, across citizens, across investors, across uh, employees, and the, the the equation is changing. And then that speaks to number seven, which is the death of the middleman. And this has been a trend that you've seen for a long time um, that, you know, it used to be that Netflix could be a middleman and it would create enough value by taking other people's content and packaging it for you. Uh, they, well, my first edition of Outthink the Competition, one of the sections was why Netflix, Netflix will break my heart. And my argument was that unless you have preferential access to resources, economies of scale, or customer centricity or customer captivity, you're not gonna be able to sustain over the long term. and that they they didn't have any of those things. And so um, they were either going to die or they were gonna become more like HBO and produce their own content. They ended up producing their own content uh, because the value of coordinating the 
the the the the goods and packaging it for the end user is now becoming commoditized because of this ability of coordination because of the technologies that we talk about. Wow, it's great it's great that that worked out isn't it you know when you're betting on the future yourself it's you don't know where it's going to go but you got that one right man i didn't know i didn't think they were going to do it i didn't think they were going to be but that's the beauty of netflix is they're so agile that they were able to see read the tea leaves and then adjust their model they didn't get stuck in the three options they they found the fourth option the next one then is something we've all seen recently, and this actually speaks a lot to the recent series we did with Yossi Sheffi about the idea of supply chains. Because of COVID, governments understood what a company can go under really, really quickly just by missing a core component. And you talk here about the importance of geopolitical retrenchment. And when I wrote this, this we didn't yet have a war in the Ukraine. We didn't yet have a war in the Middle East. And, um, and this is something that our chief strategy officers that are members of our community and our entrepreneurs are members of our community, they've been uh, concerned about for a long time. So there's certainly like a shift towards onshoring, producing more locally. And then you see governments also wanting to be less dependent on other governments, the U.S. investing a lot of money in building chip manufacturing capabilities locally. So we're less dependent on foreign countries, particularly China, for, for, for that. Uh, and there is uh, an appreciation of the just-in-time uh, approach creating very fragile supply chains, which if in a stable environment is predictable and is okay and, and, and efficient and, and efficient, um, but in unstable environments, the cost of, a, of, a, of an issue are significant, so your calculus changes and you're willing to pay for redundancy in order to pay for resiliency. That actually interrupts what we talked about earlier where you're actually can, you can be just in time, you can be actually very, very agile, but now you might need to have some type of storage, some type of stock and storage, et cetera. So it's, uh, it's and that's even within the fast cycles we're talking about here. But again, you were prophetic in the next one, which is nine of 10, which is the future of work. And this was before We've seen these multiple generations in the workplace, definitely before hybrid working was was accelerated because of COVID. One of my favorite thought leaders is Tom Malone from MIT. And he, one of his books, he just mentions it briefly, but it just, it just stuck with me, is um, that there are five ways that humans organize ourselves. We organize ourselves through hierarchies, through ecosystems, through communities, through, market, um, through democracies, and through marketplaces. And... Um, the dominant form, although no organization is purely one of those, you'll see all five of them at play in different mixes. The dominant one has been hierarchy. Hierarchy has been the most efficient technology for coordinating human behavior, uh, human activity. However, um, for many of the same fundamental technological reasons of the other trends, the ability to coordinate people without hierarchy is um, is growing. And so we're starting to see alternatives to hierarchy, new forms of, of, of organization. And uh, we actually just finished uh, a year and a half long research study that shows that if companies adopt four attributes of an alternative to a hierarchy, that they outperform. That is, treat people like entrepreneurs rather than entrepreneurs. 
organize as small teams rather than large business units, allow those small teams to compete with each other for resources rather than centrally control them, and then do the same thing for support functions so that marketing and sales and finance and IT and stuff also have to compete internally. And um, if you do those things, then you'll outperform both you know, across across multiple dimensions. So that's what we're seeing is a shift away from the hierarchy. I get a job, I sign up for multiple years, and I work for 30, and then I get a, a watch and a retirement, right, towards um, a very different form. The other thing is then to attract the work, those workers, you say you have to be good and you have to actually mean it authentically good. Workers have more choice. Uh, employees have more choice. They and, and, and what do we, you know, if we look at the hierarchy of needs, when you satisfy the, the initial needs, you know, most people want a sense of purpose. Uh, they want um, a sense of fulfillment. They want to be in the zone. They want to feel like they're doing meaningful work. They have connection. And so that's what we have to compete on. So they were the 10 forces reshuffling or recalibrating the landscape, the business competitive landscape. But next, and the final part we're going to cover today is the outdated playbook and then the shift to an asymmetrical playbook that Kaihan talks about in this book. And we're going to tee you up and bite your appetite a little bit, bit for that. But you tell us, Kaihan, that over the past several decades, companies have primarily built a competitive advantage with four familiar strategies. One, achieve customer captivity. Two, secure preferential access to resources. Three, build economies of scale. And four, adopt best practices. But that's all gone. And today you suggest a new playbook. Maybe you'll bring us at a high level through what that is. So we want to think about um, strategies being a flow of concepts that are introduced to solve a problem. And... Uh, Concepts emerge, they're adopted, they age, and they're new ones. And so these are four that are four dominant concepts that have been the basis of competition for all. This is, I, I studied at Columbia Business School, which is the home of value investing. That's where Warren Buffett came from. And the value investing approach would say you want to invest in companies that have um, a higher intrinsic value than their actual value. And the way you know that is that they have one of these things in place. Uh, one is best practices. They're well-run. They're adopting what's best. Another one could, that, that's, that I think they all need to have that. And then you can have one or more of the following three. Preferential access to resources. Own the diamond mines. Own the oil. Own the talent. Own the data. Something that you control that your competitors, they want to compete with you, they need it, and they can't get it. That's the first one. The pump. The soap the pump, pump dispenser. Exactly. <laughs> the pump is a perfect example. Exactly. The second one is economy of scale, which is to say that you're producing either at a level that is so high that your 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 average cost, because your marginal cost goes down, your average cost is lower than what a competitor could. If you can compete, which also leads us to a niche strategy, because if you can own, say, 70% of a market, there's only 30% up for grabs. And if 30% isn't enough for a competitor to achieve your economies of scale, you effectively have a monopoly, uh, an economic monopoly. So that's where we go to niche, focus, and winning through economies of scale. So that's, that's the next one. But as we talked about earlier on, as the cost of replicating that, because you could outsource production, you could hire as need on-demand workers, things like that, 
that scale advantage comes down. But that, that was the second one, the cottage to scale. And the other one is customer captivity, making it difficult or undesirable for customers to leave you. Apple, for example, when you get an Apple device, soon all of your music is on Apple, all of your photos are on Apple, your, your podcasts are on Apple. So then you get your next Apple device, your next Apple device, and they do a very clever job of enveloping you in their ecosystem, making it undesirable or difficult for you to leave. It used to be back in the day, you would do that by forcing competitors to stay. Now, of course, it's better to make one to stay. It's raising switching costs, right? That's what Michael Porter talked about, raising, you know, it's a higher switching cost. So those are the four historical sources of advantage. And for various reasons, I wouldn't say they're going away. I, I wrote that. It's a little bit more provocative than the research actually shows. Successful companies today are doing all those three things. Apple, you know, Amazon, companies that we would say are playing the new game. They didn't stop doing those things. They're still trying to do those things. But they're doing five other things as well. Will we get will we whet the appetite of our audience and tell them about those five things just at a high level? They're playing for tomorrow rather than today. They're coordinating rather than controlling. They're not defining themselves by their industry. They're creating strategic power by doing being good and they're creating things out of nothing. They're creating new categories, new occasions, new needs. Beautiful, beautiful. And again, all of this infused with uh, all the ancient wisdom from the East that Kaihan has brought to all his books and all his work again. So it's all going to be Sun Tzu quotes in the next episode as well. These are all part of the 36, when we did the very first one, the first four are four of them, and the next five are five of those 36. Well, I, I want to th thank you for giving me the time, and I, I really appreciate it, because I know it's difficult to go back for most people, even a, a few years back if you wrote a book, but you wrote these 20 years ago, so there's a, you're going a long way back into the back catalog as well, so I really appreciate that. And I want to remind our audience as well, I have two copies of I Think the Competition up for grabs as well. So this is the, the older version, but it's still full of beautiful writing and lots of nuggets of wisdom as well. The bones are the same. It's just, it's just I've refreshed the cases. I've refreshed some cases, but the, the bones of the book are they're still the same. And as a sub stack as well, where you can find them. You tell us where people can find you. If you go to a fourth option sub stack, I've moved my writing to sub stack. You can still get my writing and content, a lot of it for free. And if you want to contribute to it, you can do that. And we also have a community of coaches or practitioners of the methodology. And the Substack allows you to join that and, and pay to become a practitioner and get the workbooks and things like that as well. Author of Outthink the Competition, Kaihan Krippendorf, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me here, Aid.